This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer this Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, and in just a few moments, we're going to open up our phone lines for your calls on impaired driving to Kyla Lee, a criminal defense lawyer from Vancouver's Acumen Law Corporation and host of a blog called Driving Law. But first, here are some more of the top consumer stories we're following this week. And a week after uh, its hometown of Seattle banned plastic drinking straws and utensils, Starbucks announced this week they will be using biodegradable degradable straws and newly designed lids around the world by 2020. Starbucks already offers alternative straws in Seattle. Those will appear here in Vancouver in the next few weeks, too. The focus will be on the states and Canada in the next year and Europe and Asia in 2020. Health Canada says a brand of frozen mixed berries is being recalled because of possible salmonella contamination. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency says Haines Celestial Canada, ULC, is recalling Europe's best brand field berry mixes. It says the recall was triggered by a recall in another country, but no illnesses associated with the product have been reported here. It says the brand's 600-gram bags of field berry mix and 2 kilograms bags of four-field berry mix are affected. The agency says it's conducting a food safety investigation. Founders and leaders from some of the fastest growing companies in the tech industry are coming to Vancouver for a conference next month to share their stories of growth and success with anyone who wants to show up. The conference, known as Traction, will be held at Park Vancouver, and the theme for this year is Scaling Up. Special guests and speakers will share their challenges and learnings from scaling their companies to 10 million, 50 million, 100 million plus in revenue, acquisition, and IPO. Some of the speakers Speakers at this year's conference include reps from Google, Reddit, Bumble, and 20th Century Fox. The conference will take place Wednesday, August 8th, Thursday, August 9th. Registration currently open online. Tickets to the event are still available online. The conference is called Traction. Californians aren't exactly known for their stuffy workplace attire. Even so, Mayor Paris of Lancaster, Los Angeles County, wants to forbid, forbid rather, all city employers from requiring workers to don the enemy of the casual wardrobe, neckties. The seemingly random proposal is a matter of public health, says the mayor. Last week, the mayor came across a new study published in the journal Neuroradiology that suggests wearing neckties may look lower blood flow to the brain, potentially curbing creativity and analytical thinking. The study contends that restricting circulation by such an amount, 7.5% on average, according to the records, could have fatal implications for someone with high blood pressure. Okay, that's the latest excuse for banning ties at work. A little weak, you say? I'll bet it's very popular in Lancaster, California. And big news for folks with peanut allergies who like to fly. This week, Southwest Airlines announced they will discontinue serving peanuts to passengers on all flights beginning August 1st. Southwest will stick with pretzels and other free snack treats, just no more nuts. This, of course, is quite a turnaround for the airline that began by advertising itself as 
the carrier with peanut fares back in the 70s when it began. There was even a time in 2010 when the U.S. Department of Transportation tried to enact a total peanut ban on all American carriers, but that was unsuccessful. The National Peanut Board, there is such a thing, this week expressed dismay with the nut ban on Southwest, saying it's a little over the top for 1% of Americans who have peanut allergies, especially considering there are other approaches and remedies available. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at a few more later in the show. Stay with us and get ready with your phone calls to Kyla Lee, who's here, uh, a a criminal defense lawyer who specializes in impaired driving offenses. And there's a whole new batch of possibilities coming this fall with cannabis legislation. This is perhaps part of the the Trudeau package that, um, uh, well, supporters are, are least aware of. The laws that accompany the legalized of marijuana will allow Canadian police new powers at the roadside, some of which you may find disturbing. We'll get all the details from Kyla Lee after this quick time out. It's Vancouver Consumer. You're with CKNW. And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer this gorgeous Saturday afternoon. It is 3.12. I'm Sterling Fox. Uh, I'd like to welcome Kyla Lee to the Vancouver Consumer Consumer Show here on CKNW. Ms. Lee is a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney with the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Kyla. You and I have talked many times on the radio. We've never met before. Yeah, it's nice to finally meet you. Seriously (laughs) overdue, wasn't it? (laughs) Yes. Good of you to drop by. Uh, You spent a lot of time defending clients who are charged with impaired driving. Most of those people, I would suspect, up until this point, have been charged with uh, driving uh, under the influence of alcohol. Have you yet defended anyone in in court who has been charged with impairment due to other causes than alcohol? Yes, absolutely. I deal with uh, drug-impaired driving cases very regularly, both in criminal court and in administrative hearings disputing 24-hour prohibitions for drugs. So how do they determine uh, that there is sufficient grounds to to charge an individual with impairment when they know it's something other than alcohol? What what uh, criteria do they use? Right now in Canada, what they use is something called the drug recognition evaluation. So it's a series of 12 steps that the police put a person through to test their physical ability as well as test their um, sort of their medical situation. So pulse rate, they look at your pupil size, things like that. And based on that, they're able supposedly to identify what the category of drug is that's impairing the person and whether they're impaired due to drugs. Mm, I I would challenge the category of drug almost immediately. (laughs) However, impairment is impairment is impairment. And if you can't walk a straight line or touch the end of your nose with your finger, chances are you're smashed on something and therefore in trouble. Is that a safe statement? Uh, Yes, in a common sense way, but no in the sense of how the tests are designed. Because the way they administer the test, they don't make you walk a straight line like you would normally walk down the street. They draw an imaginary line on the ground and you have to step on the line that's in the police officer's imagination. Um, As far as touching the end of your nose, they don't make you just stick your finger to the end of your nose. They make you stick your hands all the way out to your sides, tilt your head back at an angle, close your eyes, and then put the very tip of your finger on the very tip of your nose. Mm, I've never had the 
test given to me, but I've seen it conducted up close with a, with a, with a, with a friend. <laughs> I wasn't driving at the time. But yes, and I remember the head back and all of that stuff. He passed. He, oh. was, he wasn't particularly messed up at all. It was a pretty aggressive young officer at the time. But so what, the, what will the big difference be between testing for impairment that they do now compared to what they're going to be able to do when this new law comes is proclaimed sometime in October and it's all perfectly legal because this does give the police additional powers uh, as well as give consumers the power to smoke or not recreationally. Yes. yes, and the additional powers given to police, one of the biggest ones that concerns me is the police will get to take your blood now. Right now, if at the end of the evaluation they think that you're on a drug, they can take you to the hospital and have the hospital draw blood. Now the police officers are going to draw it right then and there. And they're also giving them the power to do roadside saliva testing and random testing without any grounds whatsoever for alcohol. Oh, my. Oh, okay. Well, there's a whole... That's a big mouthful. There's a lot in there. There's a lot. Let's start with the, let's start with the policeman as a paramedic, because they aren't. Some of them have paramedic training. A lot of them really just overextend themselves and, and, and go out and get that training on personal basis because they feel that it, it enhances their ability to be good officers. Yeah. But they're not paramedics. So will, will any police officer be able to draw blood? And where... Any police officer who's trained by the government as a qualified technician will be able to draw blood. So any officer who's also trained to operate the breathalyzer, the police station will now get to just take blood out of your body, stick you with a needle, and there's no limitation on where they can do it. They could do it in the back of a police car. They could do it standing in the dirt at the roadside. They could do it in an accident scene, or they could do it in the police station in a dirty cell that hasn't been wiped down with sanitary wipes and, and that exposes you to all sorts of communicable diseases. Well, I can't imagine every police officer in the country being breathlessly awaiting a chance to start drawing blood from people in the backseats of cruisers or wherever the location happens to be. You talk to cops all the time. You're a criminal defense lawyer. Not all the conversations are pleasant. Some of them are. You get to know a lot of cops doing your kind of work. What do they tell you about this business? They're not happy about having the power to draw blood. They don't want to do it. They're scared not only for their own personal safety, because if there's a a needle stick with a contaminated needle, they could end up exposing themselves to HIV or hepatitis C or other other types of diseases. They're also concerned about the potential for being sued if they do it wrong and they cause injury to somebody, if they, you know, jab the wrong place and somebody starts bleeding profusely. Right, right. You know, it exposes them to a lot of risk, both legal and physical. And they don't want to take that risk when there's already a mechanism in place by which it can easily be done. Well, and there are also, you know, not everyone who gets pulled over on a Saturday night for suspected impairment is the most docile person in the world. No. Sometimes people flip out, especially when they're told to sit in the back of a police car and shut your mouth. Uh, and then they get real unhappy and sometimes quite physical. And if you're trying to draw blood from a large human being who's being very physical and opposed to the idea, it could get very messy very fast. It can, and especially when you factor into that, that by the time they're getting to the step of drawing blood, they've already concluded this person is on drugs, so likely there are drugs in this person's body. You have somebody on drugs who, who poses a significant physical risk to the police. Mm. And then there's the, the, there's the whole other question of residual um, uh, qualities of, of cannabis that remain in your system for 
uh, days in some cases. When you drink alcohol, uh, especially more than you should, uh, you can blow into one of those things at the side of the road and it's going to go right off the deep end in no time. And you're, you're smashed and you're caught. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're smashed and you're caught. If you've, if you've had a joint yesterday after dinner and it's now 24 hours later and you haven't touched anything since, your body could still register a significant degree of cannabis in your system on some kind of detector that would allow someone to say, well, you're smashed and you're caught. Wait a second. I haven't touched anything for 24 hours. So therein lies an interesting legal situation. What do you do with that one? It's going to be a very big gray area, and we don't really know how the government's going to deal with this. There's lots of scientific research that has shown elevated levels of THC present in the body days or even weeks after use, especially for heavy users or medical users. And you're going to have people who are registering illegal levels of THC in their system. Um, who are not, in fact, uh, over uh, over any level of impairment. Um, it's going to be something the courts are going to have to sort out. The other concern is that it only tests for THC. None of the testing that the government's doing is testing for other things that are found in cannabis, like cannabidiol, CBD. Okay. That can mitigate the effects of THC. THC is impairing. Cannabidiol is non-impairing. That's the medicinal aspect of yes. cannabis, correct? Now, that's what a lot of uh, uh, people who use cannabis for pain uh, and mitigation, they go for the CBDs, don't they? Yes, exactly. And so you can have that, which can actually eliminate the impairing effects of THC so that you're not impaired, even though you have an elevated THC level. There's already a BC Supreme Court case in the context of somebody breaching a bail condition where the CBD versus THC issue is very real. And nothing about Bill C-46 accounts for this. Nothing in the legislation accounts for allowing you the opportunity to say, hey, there was this much CBD because they don't even test for it and they're not intending to test for it. And the legislation says the police, when they take your blood, have to take two samples But it also says that if they don't take two samples, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, that's sort of contradictory. I mean, this whole thing, just again, from a a very layperson's perspective, it already just reeks of constitutional challenges on several levels. And I have no training in in the legal area at all. And I can just smell this. I mean, dozens of constitutional challenges on any number of aspects. What do you think the first one's going to be? I think the first one's going to be the legal limits for THC in the blood system for the reasons I've described already and because it affects medical users, which can raise really interesting constitutional issues because you have the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, sure. which includes access to your medicine. And you can't, you shouldn't have to make a decision as a driver, oh, am I going to drive or am I going to take my medicine? You should be allowed to do both. If your medicine puts you in a better position to be behind the wheel, I don't want someone who's in extreme pain driving. Mm. I'd rather them manage their pain and drive because anytime I've been in pain, I've certainly thought I would not be safe on the road right now. And and to say that people who are are medical users have to make that decision now and have to say either I'm going to drive or I'm going to take take my medicine is is just completely unfair and and completely inconsistent with charter rights. I've only ever been I've been in Vancouver over 40 years and I've only ever been in one accident in this city. I was coming up uh, from the airport Uh, up Granville Street, and I was hit at the intersection of 70th and Granville by an old guy speeding through an intersection. He hit me so hard, my car turned 90 degrees in the other direction. When the police attended the scene, they said, this guy 
an elderly gentleman who was on some form of medication. The policeman who came made sure I was okay, and I was pretty rattled, but I was fine. My car was totaled. The guy who hit me didn't know where he was, Kyla. He hadn't a clue. He was out of his mind on meds. So that's, and that's my only experience with, and I've got a lot of driving stories to tell in Vancouver. It's an ugly town to drive in, but that's my only accident. And I was taken out by a guy who literally didn't know where he was. But isn't that an issue more of the medication not being managed properly and his doctor not doing a good job of explaining to him the risks of what he's taking and making sure that what he's taking is being taken appropriately and is not resulting in those adverse collisions? If you're being properly medicated, you shouldn't be experiencing that. Well, exactly. I mean... Again, uh, the, the cops were, were floored when they examined this individual and talked to him and got his, you know, his insurance and all that. They actually came to me and said, this, this, is, this is you're wasting your time here. This guy doesn't know where he is. And yes, he shouldn't have been driving. They, they both officers said, this guy shouldn't have been driving. He shouldn't be out at all. So clearly it was, it was his fault. Mm-hmm. And all the rest of it, but uh, again, uh, in, in, uh, it wouldn't have gone to court. There was nothing to. <laughs> there was nothing to go to court about. It was a, a clearly a, a, an open and shut case. But again, you're right. It's 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 a mismanagement situation here. But again, it happens an awful lot. It does. Yes, and, and people don't understand. I think there's another area of uh, uh, there's a lot of catching up for a lot of people to do mm-hmm. and I don't think a lot of people understand necessarily Kyla medical marijuana and how it works uh, is it like an opioid for example well a lot of people will tell you no in fact we're trying to get medical marijuana prescribed where op- opioids are currently being used and don't need to be it, it isn't that dramatic But there's still a lot of learning to do, isn't there? There is a lot of learning to do. And that's one of the really disappointing things about this legislation is it came at a time when we could have been doing all of this learning for decades leading up to now. I mean, it's no secret that people in British Columbia especially have been smoking marijuana despite the fact that it's illegal. In Vancouver, as you know, we have all of these dispensaries. Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. walk into any of them and buy marijuana and it's not legal, um, but we just allow it. We, the, the police and the government have had ample opportunity to study this and to get it right. And they've done nothing but sit on their hands until now. And it was just a couple weeks ago that they announced a $1 million commitment to researching cannabis-impaired driving, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's spread over three years, so it's about $330,000 a year. Right. It's not a lot of research that you can fund for that amount, and it's coming after they've already uh, passed the bill to legalize it, after they've already passed the impaired driving legislation, and now they're saying, Oh, we're going to look into why we're why we're doing this and whether it's justified after the fact. It's too little, too late. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling that this whole legalization of marijuana has been put together. Bill Blair, the former uh, Toronto City Police Chief, is the uh, the lead MP on the file. But I, I get the feeling that it's been put together, written and proclaimed by people who still don't believe in it. We recognize this is a dangerous drug, and against our better judgment, we're going to make it legal anyway. That's what the law and the presentation of the package says to me. It's reluctantly, uh, this is bad. We know it's bad, but gosh, it seems to be popular, so here you go, kids. That's what I get, and I think it's a really wrong way to package new laws. It's, it's a really terrible way to put together this law. I mean, taking it away from the impaired driving and into just dealing with how you're, you're going to deal with it with 
individuals and consumers, um, it, it significantly limits who can purchase marijuana, how much they can purchase. The provinces have way too much power to regulate it. The the penalties for violating the legal marijuana rules are are more significant than any of the penalties for violating any alcohol rules. And at home, you can, you know, if you're a parent at home, you can give your teenager a beer with dinner, and that's that's allowed. You're right. allowed to do that in your house. Yeah, that's right. But if you're at home and you want to give your teenager a joint with, I don't know, a movie to, to you know, enhance the experience or whatever the case may be, you can't do that. That's trafficking drugs to a minor, and you could face a significant jail term for that. Which makes no sense, um, because if you're going to call it legalization, it's got to be legalized and regulated in an administrative way, not legalized and then strictly controlled through serious criminal penalties. Mm-hmm. But then there's that there's that thing in the back of your mind that's that all of the law says, really, we really think this is bad, but we're going to do it anyway. And so there's this sort of reluctant law, and, and it's... It's very odd. I need to take a break for the news. Kyla Lee from Acumen Law Corporation in studio. Haven't opened the phone lines yet. Better do that before our system actually blows up because I have a feeling we're going to get a few calls in the next half hour. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. We welcome your calls on this topic. 604-280-9898. More on impaired driving both before and after the proclamation of legal cannabis uh, this fall with Kyla Lee from Acumen Law when we return on Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. Welcome back to the show. It's Sterling Fox with Kyla Lee from Acumen Law Corporation. Kyla is a criminal defense lawyer who also hosts a podcast called Driving Law, which appears every week where? YouTube? Where do we find you? It's on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud. You can Google uh, Driving Law Podcast and it'll come up. All right. Excellent. Uh, We're going to take some phone calls here. The lines are open. 604-280-9898. Roy in uh, Port Coquitlam, let's take your call first. You've been waiting the longest. Thank you for that. Hello. Good afternoon. How's it going? All right. Thanks, Roy. What's up? So I can't believe what I'm hearing, that they can take my blood, they can take my saliva on a random basis. I thought we had the charter freedoms from unreasonable search and seizure. And what are they going to do once they do have that? Are they going to enter it into the DNA National Data Bank and compare me to every crime that's happened? Wow. Hadn't thought about that part at all. Good question. Especially since I haven't consumed anything legal or illegal substance wise in almost 30 years i can be the 12th car and i'm having to give it up or i wake up from someone smashing me and mm-hmm. i had my blood taken there's got to be something we can do and my question is what are the legislation uh proposing for penalties for folks like me that want to refuse this intrusion Good questions. A lot of them in there. So let's take the last one first, Kyla. The penalty for refusing to provide a sample of saliva if you're asked to do a saliva test or a sample of blood if you're asked to do a blood test is the same as if you're convicted of impaired driving. So a mandatory penalty with a a fine and a driving prohibition and a mandatory criminal record. The other question that Roy had, this had Roy, it had never occurred to me. What do they do with your blood sample once they take it? And it does it go to some national DNA blood registry? Are you now a statistic on their crime database for life? No, thankfully, the government did think that through, and they did put a provision in Bill C-46 that prevents your blood or your saliva sample from being used for any other investigation or any other purpose. That help, Roy? 
Um, barely. I still think it's a hugely um, intrusive and, you know, I'm supposed to be presumed innocent. They can just say, you're, you're next. I, I can't believe that the Canadian government has allowed that for our citizens. Well, either can I, and I appreciate your call very much. 604-280-9898. Kyla, this is, this, the guy is aghast, basically, and as more and more of us learn the details, and frankly, I think those who are keen to have pot legal are just all about October the whatever the date, and we'll have a big smoke on. But for the rest of us who are concerned about the life-goes-on aspects to all of this, there are, there are a lot of details that need to be learned, and we need, to be, we need to fill ourselves in. They've given themselves quite extensive powers here. That's, in my way of thinking, and clearly Roy agrees with me, it's kind of dangerous. It's a little too open-ended, don't you think? They have way too much power under this new legislation uh, to take to take bodily samples at random, to uh, engage in all sorts of examinations of individuals on very lax uh, evidentiary standards. It's, it's a huge amount of power given to police. And, uh, I mean, like the old saying goes, if, if you have great power, you need to have great responsibility. And, unfortunately, none of this legislation legislation puts a huge amount of responsibility on police for how they exercise these powers. So, and and the other, just just to, again on the legal point that Roy raised, if it's a multi-car accident caused perhaps initially by someone who was impaired, but because it's a multi-vehicle thing, does everybody's blood sample get drawn as a result of all of that? Or do they go after the vehicle they think was the offending vehicle in the first place? If, as Roy says, he's in car 12, did they get him too? Not necessarily. The police, in order to take your blood, still have to have reasonable grounds to believe that your uh, your ability to drive is impaired by a drug. And they also have to believe that it would be impracticable to uh, obtain a sample um, through the drug recognition evaluation process, doing the 12 steps and then taking the blood at the end of that. So they can't just take your blood because you were in an accident. But if you're in a major accident, the type of, of physical condition symptoms you're going to be exhibiting are the same as being on drugs, sure. trouble walking balance, slurred speech, all of that makes you look like you're on drugs. Mm, okay. Up to Gibson's. Al, thanks for waiting. Hello. Hello, Al here. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, me, as a, uh, what I feel, I'm a safe driver. It, uh, it should be my right to expect that the driver coming towards me is totally unimpaired in any way. Yes. So uh, what about my rights then? And I'm in the majority. So all these people complaining of uh, random testing, is, uh, I think, is wrong. Okay, why? Well, because of the status quo. I mean, I expect that uh, I don't want some impaired driver coming towards me. Right. Uh, crashing into me, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what about my rights? Well, criminal... treading on my rights, then. Okay, well, I get your point. Uh, uh, go ahead, Kyla. Yeah, criminal law is not as much concerned with the rights of other people so much as it is concerned with the state's ability to regulate the behavior of individuals, and then the Charter of Rights is concerned with the protection of individual liberties from intrusions by the states. So your rights as a driver to be on the road and to feel safe when you're on the road... With a reasonable expectation that yes, I'm absolutely. going to be able to get home safely tonight. And if those rights are violated, you have the right to sue the person who violated them in civil court. So you can bring in action for damages if you were injured by a drunk driver and we have, of course, the ICBC and the compulsory coverage that will pay you out and then collect from the impaired driver in the event that they're convicted of a crime. 
Okay. Um, again, though, and, and you hear this, you're in the business of, you're a criminal defense lawyer. You've been defending drunks and people who have been arrested for being on drugs or at least suspected of being on drugs. So you hear the other side, the mad argument all the time. And it's quite reasonable for citizens to expect safe driving conditions at all times. That's not an unreasonable demand by any licensed driver anywhere, is it? No, not at all. And I have a driver's license too. I use the roads too, and I'd like to be safe on them. Um, it's just that when the government is exercising its authority to uh, take samples from people and to stop people and to search their bodies and engage them in this testing, my expectation as a citizen of a country that has a charter of rights is that that's going to be done in a fair and appropriate way. Right. Now, What's uh, just to follow up on that? Suppose now there used to be something called reasonable grounds, Kyla. You, the cops were allowed to pull you over if you were driving erratically or just doing something that, oh, wait a second, here's a problem. Let's check this guy out. That's probable grounds. Uh, is there, is that probable grounds, uh, does that still apply in terms of the reason for getting pulled over in the first place? It doesn't. The police have the power to stop any driver at any time to check for sobriety, valid license, valid insurance, and driver fitness to operate the vehicle. So you can be driving perfectly normally down the road and get pulled over and the officer can walk up and say, I'm just checking to see if you have a license. Okay. Uh, wanted to just switch gears for a second here because this has come up and we talked about it during the news break. Uh, it came up again yesterday with one of the uh, federal cabinet ministers. The border. We live close to the border. We love our Seahawks and our Mariners and I haven't been to a game yet this year and I'm, I'm really struggling with it. I don't want to go to the States while all this nonsense is going on. I can, I'm happy. But I miss my Mariners, and I'd love to go down for a game or two before the season. But, you know, what happens if I'm crossing the border with my wife? We're on our way down to see a Mariners game, maybe even the Blue Jays. And some one of Trump's troopers wants to know if I've ever smoked marijuana before and asks me at the border, what do I do, lawyer person? Well, it's an offense to lie at the border. So uh, if you lie and they're able to figure out that you're lying, you could be put on a lifetime ban from entry to the United States. Such as is happening. We're getting all this. Mm -hmm. And we're finding out, for example, that people who, let's just say you've never smoked uh, anything in your life. You've never participated in the whole pot thing ever. Yet your financial advisor two years ago got you into canopy growth and you've met us sizable gain on the stock market by owning cannabis stocks. And that comes up at the border. You can get banned for life, never once in your life having smoked, can't you? Yep, absolutely. The U.S. government considers that you're profiting off the illegal drug trade, even though it's about to be the legal drug trade in Canada. And so they can deny you entry because you are essentially participating in the economic process of something that they're trying to eliminate. This is part of their rhetoric of the war on drugs. And to them, marijuana is as bad as any other drug. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because as of some time later this year, it's going to be legal in White Rock. It's legal in Blaine. But in no man's land between White Rock and Blaine, it's a class A dangerous narcotic. I think a lot of people forget, too, though, that 
Where it's legal in the United States, it's actually still technically illegal because drugs are regulated federally in the United States and states can't technically pass laws to legalize cannabis. They just have been doing it and the federal government has been letting them do it, similar to sort of the the cannabis stores that we have in Vancouver that are regulated by the uh, municipal government. Right, right. Which um, just which d- decides to look the other way. Exactly. We and dozens of them around Metro Vancouver. Now they're starting in the suburbs of one of Maple Ridge and all this. But of course, I mean, we're what? How many months away? Two or three months away from a lot of these places are going to have to close, though, aren't they? They are, yes. A lot of the places that are existing are going to have to close because of the way that the province is setting up its licensing and distribution scheme. It'll be interesting to see who survives and who doesn't. Well, some of them likely, though, all of them will close, but most of them, I assume, will reapply instantly uh, for actual legal business licenses. Will most of them get them, do you think? Yes. The government is is trying to fast track and make it easier for the existing businesses to get a license and to operate under the legal framework. So the BC government's already thought this through and has, has prioritized those types of applications. Okay, back to the phones. Patricia, thank you for waiting. Hello. Hello. Um, yes, the biggest problem is that we have a prime minister that people elected and his main reason for wanting to be in the government was so that he could legalize marijuana. So now we not only have the problem with the way it was legalized, we also still have the problem of having a dummy in there as our prime minister. Well, you know, that's the only reason, only reason he wanted to legalize it with it because he smokes it. Well, I don't know. He apparently has admitted to the old Bill Clinton thing. I think mm-hmm. I tried it once, but I didn't inhale. Trudeau at least admitted to inhaling a couple of times. Uh, you can do something about the the uh, in office part. There's an election next year. It's not all yes, a lost cause, wait, Patricia. People are so stupid. They'll probably elect him again because he has nice hair and he's good looking. <laughs> Well, there you go. And, you know, to a certain group of Canadian voters, that's enough reason. You know, the rhetoric, it's interesting, Patricia used the word rhetoric, and you were talking about how it's okay to, to on a Sunday dinner, to give the underage kids a glass of wine with their meal. Mm-hmm. But after dinner, were you to try to share a joint with your kids, that's illegal because the rhetoric surrounding this reluctant legalization has everything to do with keeping it out of the hands of children so you can share all you can empty the wine cupboard with the kids but don't you dare light up a joint how crazy is that it's it's absolutely ridiculous and it's deluding ourselves to think that children and in particular teenagers are not accessing marijuana already i mean i remember when i was in high school um you know being friends with the school dealer and all the kids who'd walk off to a certain corner at lunchtime to smoke up i mean that's been going on since i was in high school it was probably going on when you were in high school it's it's no secret that kids have access to marijuana legalizing it and increasing the penalties for giving it to children isn't going to change that it isn't going to stop it it's probably in some respects going to make it more difficult for children to safely use these substances when they're so um so stigmatized for doing it yeah and the two pillars though that this whole thing has been predicated upon are keeping it safe keeping our children safe and keeping the product out of the hands of organized crime that's the two-pillar approach this whole legalization has been based on, those two premises, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a third that I'm aware of. Nope. Okay. Oh, there was that vote for me part, of course, <laughs> yes. Uh, to Bob in Burnaby. Hello, Bob. 
Hey, I got a, I got a really good question. I'm one of these guys that's a libertarian, and I get stopped. They force, they're trying to force me to swab. They're trying to force me to get a blood test. I, I, I say, no, I ain't going to do it. Right. Then right after they impound my car, take me to whatever, I go, I go to a hospital, and I, and I do submit to a test where I control the results. Uh, what what are the ramifications of that when you prove that holy Jesus guy is not even hasn't had a drink hasn't had any drug in him nothing what does the government do then that's a great question Kyla's expression however Bob I must tell you is not very encouraging go ahead yeah I'm afraid Bob I don't have good news for you uh, even if you went through all of that effort to show that you had no drugs in your body by refusing to provide the sample you would be guilty of a criminal offense and so if you went to court and and said this is what I did you would be convicted on the basis of that you know, you, what you don't know, like what like we know that they're going to take these swabs and we know where they're going to go like it, it, they can lie to us and say they're going to handle them responsibly but hey i come from the era of kent state don't give me this crap all right well you know and there are more, bob's not the only person who is suspicious about where these test results are going to end up. You seem surprisingly confident that the government will just allow them to evaporate once you are determined to be impaired or not. They're not going to be filed away carefully under your name in some deep, dark database. No, and and that's because the legislation prohibits it. And if an officer were to do that, if they were to take those steps of taking your saliva swab or your blood sample and using it in some other investigation to get other evidence against you in a a murder or a robbery or something like that, Mm. um, that would be not just a huge violation of your rights, but also a violation of a law prohibiting them to do that. And the officer would be subject to significant police discipline. So they would be jeopardizing. Plus the evidence would be inadmissible. The evidence would be inadmissible and their careers would be in jeopardy. Interesting stuff. Uh, great questions from uh, from our listeners. A lot of different concerns, and I'm sure these are, are things that you hear expressed more often than not. I see uh, you talked about your the most likely constitutional challenge, the first one to come along. But there, it's it's going to be there's going to be just basically you get the feeling nonstop constitutional challenges until this thing gets amended the way it should have been written in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And the problem with nonstop constitutional challenges is it is a huge burden on our courts because you have people whose cases are put on hold pending the outcomes of other challenges in other cases. We know that because this is completely new legislation, it's not going to stop at just the provincial court or the Supreme Court level. It's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm. It's going to take years. There's going to be a backlog of cases. And then we're going to run into significant concerns about delays getting cases set for trial. These cases taking time away from serious matters, cases that the public has more of an interest in prosecuting, like, um, like you know, child molestation cases yeah, or really. murders, uh, serious offenses are likely going to be stayed because we have constitutional challenges over laws that should never have been written the way they were in the first place. Interesting stuff. Final question, because we're almost out of time. Lawyers, if I'm at the side of the road like Rob, and I don't want to give a, a, a saliva sample or have some guy stab me for a blood sample in the backseat of his cruiser, can I at least say, look... You don't touch me. I don't do anything until I call my lawyer. Are you at least allowed to do that? Yes and no. You're allowed to do that before a blood sample. You're not allowed to do that before a saliva sample. Really? Yes. 
The saliva, the results of the saliva test are only admissible to give the officer grounds to believe that your ability to drive is impaired by alcohol and subject you to further testing, at which point you have the opportunity to call a lawyer. I see. Okay. Uh, but before you do the saliva test, you don't have the right to call a lawyer. Um, there are going to be constitutional challenges around that because of the time it takes to do the saliva testing. Interesting. Final thought from you, uh, if at all possible, and you're in a roadside situation for impairment of of any description and you have a chance to call your lawyer should you yes absolutely anytime you have a chance to call a lawyer in one of these situations you should get legal advice and just to find out what where you are really and what leg legal legs if at all you have to stand on yes absolutely okay how do we get a hold of you acumenlaw.ca is the company website and i assume you're on there and that's where we could find your email address and your telephone contact points all that stuff yep everything is on acumenlaw.ca or you can find me on twitter at irp lawyer or you could google the driving law podcast yes all right kyla lee thanks so much for this finally we had a chance to meet we've had many conversations over the years finally a face-to-face thank you for coming in on such a beautiful day thanks for having me my pleasure we're back after this and once again our thanks to kyla lee from the acumen law corporation here in vancouver for a very informative visit thanks for all those calls to terrific questions next weekend we look at debt solutions with bdo canada and we'll get a fresh vancouver market real estate update from john carlson time now for duly noted and this time around our producer ben Dooley has a look at credit card skimmers on the canada line Thanks, Sterling. If you've used your credit or debit card at the Compass vending machines on the Canada Line route this week, you might want to check in with your financial institution. Metro Vancouver Transit Police said that Vancouver City Centre and YVR Airport stations were targeted specifically on July 8th by card skimmers. Card skimming involves criminals installing a small device into a machine like ATMs, for example, that can capture and store all the details from the card's magnetic stripe. Metro Vancouver Transit Police spokesperson Anne Drennan says the skimmers at the airport station had not been there before Sunday, but the timing for Vancouver City Centre is undetermined. Out of an abundance of caution, all customers who use their debit or credit cards in the Compass vending machines at one of those two stations on Sunday from the start of service until 5 p.m. that same day, are asked to check with their financial institution just to make sure that their cards haven't been compromised. It's still unclear if any card data has been obtained. An investigation is underway. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thanks, Ben. A couple more consumer quickies before we go. A word of caution from the people of the BC Wildfire Service this week to be extra careful while enjoying the great outdoors. Five new fires were reported on Thursday. Eleven more new fires last night. The largest fire right now in the province is near Kamloops, nearly 500 hectares in size. The danger rating is rising from low to moderate in some areas and high in parts of the BC North, and an unpleasant combination of hot, dry weather and high winds cost a special weather statement to be issued for the Okanagan, Shuswap, Boundary, Arrow Lakes, and Nicola regions, and they're expecting a busy weekend. Looking for an excuse to party today? Well, how about taking in the Bastille Day Festival at the Roundhouse Community Center down in Yaletown? Bastille Day is the national holiday of France, which they call La Fête Nationale or Le 14 Juillet, July 14th. 
Seine, and it recalls the original storming of the Bastille prison in Paris in 1789, which led to the overthrow of the monarchy and the French Revolution. Today, 229 years later, in Yale Town, the French National Day is a celebration of French culture, cuisine, and language. It's family-friendly, it's free, and it goes right through until 10 tonight with music, food, and all sorts of entertainment, including an interactive public art exhibit. Lots more at BastilleDayFestival.ca. That is our show for today, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferreira at the controls. We value your feedback, and if you have any thoughts or suggestions for our show, please send them along to Sterling at CKNW.com. I'm Sterling Fox. Join us again next Saturday at 2 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer, right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.